This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. I was in the course of taking off. I was at about 800 feet when my motor quit. And I've had other emergencies in different types of airplanes, but probably nothing that had the sort of immediacy that that has. And, you know, my first initial reaction was, I can't believe this is actually happening. Welcome to another edition of There I Was a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. This episode involves an engine failure in return back to the airport, what's commonly called the impossible turn. There's some important context around that, so please stay around at the end of this episode for a discussion about the impossible turn and some more context around this situation. Today's guest is Eric Henson, Eric is a former Navy pilot. He graduated from Naval Flight Training and was selected as a SIRGRAD, one of the few they bring back as an instructor. He instructed in the A-4 and then went on to fly F-18s. He flew in the Operational Test Squadron and then after leaving the Navy, he worked at Gulfstream and other aviation entities and eventually moved to become President and CEO of SIMCOM. Throughout his time and all of that, he flew general aviation He's got about 5,400 hours total time and about 1,700 hours in his bonanza. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks. It's it's great to join you. So, Eric, you and I share a mutual friend in Pete Bunce and our appreciation for Gamma and what they do. And Pete was sharing with me about the story that you had flying your bonanza when you had an engine failure immediately after takeoff and turned back towards the airport. And this is a very relevant topic these days in in GA. And so uh, we'd love to hear your story. Do you mind uh, telling it to us? So what what happened? No, I'm happy to. Yeah, Pete's a a great friend and obviously a great advocate for uh, general aviation. Yeah, I've, I've been flying uh, Beechcraft Bonanzas for longer than I'd care to share with your audience, perhaps. But uh, they're great airplanes, and throughout uh, really decades of flying the airplane, I've, I've really had a uh, relatively mishap-free career in, in general aviation. But on this particular instance, um, I was flying out of Sanford Airport in Orlando, and in the course of taking off, I was at about 800 feet when my motor quit. And I've had other emergencies in different types of airplanes, but probably nothing that had the sort of immediacy that that has. And, you know, my first initial reaction was, I can't believe this is actually happening, which is, I think, a pretty typical reaction. But uh, shortly after the engine quit, uh, like I said, at about 800 feet or so AGL, 
I started a, a turn back to the field. And uh, so I took off heading east on runway nine left, at, for those who are familiar with Sanford. And so I started a turn to the left or to the north. And as I was in the turn, I uh, radioed the tower and told them that my engine had quit and that I was returning to the field. Eric, do you mind if I can uh, ask you, you're taking straight off and you're coming back to the runway, you make a decision to make a left turn. Was that just instinct, fighter pilots always turn left kind of thing, or what made that decision to turn left? It's a good question. I'd love to tell you that it was some brilliant foresight on my part, but honestly, I think it's just um, visceral reaction to turn left because hmm. that's the pattern I've flown for so many years in my life. Okay. <laughs> Navy pilots always turn left, yeah. So I think um, there wasn't any sort of a wind factor or weather factor. I think, honestly, turning right or left um, would have made no difference. Okay. The runway, the winds were pretty much directly down the runway. So I don't think it would have made any difference. What did go through my mind, though, is the altitudes and the decision to make the turn and, and make a turn to try to return to the field was based on previous training that I've done where you, you know, fail the engine. And then and we do this in simulators here, actually, at Simcom where we do it at various altitudes and then see what your profile looks like in terms of your ability to return to the field. So in my bonanza, as a rule of thumb, what I use is anything less than 600 feet, and I'm looking directly in front of the airplane to either side of the wing, so about 90 degrees off of the wing on either side and whatever's in front of me, but I would never try to attempt to return to the field if I'm 600 feet or less AGL. And that 600 feet, Eric, came from uh, just your experience in the simulator, just Practice. pra practicing it for real in the simulator, or how did, that, how did you come at that number? Um, actually doing the return to the field at various altitudes in the simulator. So doing it at 400 feet, at 600 feet, at 800 feet, at 1,000 feet, and um, based on those outcomes. And, and this is an exercise that we do with most of our pilots who go through training here. And, you know, every aircraft obviously is a little bit different, but in general, a low wing GA airplane, the altitudes are going to be pretty similar. And so, and, and it depends on your reaction time and, mm -hmm. you know, your probably experience level has something to do with it as well. But below 600 feet, in an airplane like a Bonanza, you'd be pretty hard-pressed to get it back to the field completely. So better to be looking in front of the airplane and looking for a, a place to actually put the aircraft down. Yeah, I'm even surprised that 600 feet works. Like, that That seems um, low to me just as a just off-the-cuff kind of observation. Yeah. Is that based on reaction? Do you bake reaction time in there? Or could you talk to us a little bit more about how you feel about that? Is that an absolute minimum and what's in, what's involved in that number? Yeah, yeah. Well, so the reason, and, and I should have finished um, my thought when I was talking about the altitudes, between 600 and 800 feet, it is very dependent on the environment. So between 600 and 800 feet, it's very possible that I wouldn't try to make a turn back to the field either. Hmm. The reason I use that 
buffer of 600 to 800 feet is every takeoff situation is a little different. If, for instance, I was taking off at an airport that had a crossing intersection runway that was, you know, perhaps halfway down the runway I was taking off and I was already airborne and passed it, I don't have to make a complete 180 degree turn, but I could make a 120 degree turn, say, and get back and safely land on on an asphalt runway. So the reason I use that buffer is it it is dependent sort of on the specific circumstances. And then 800 feet and above is really where I feel comfortable pretty much in any situation making a full, complete turn back to the field. Okay. So, So that's really my personal sort of numbers that I've formed myself and I, you know, brief those to myself pretty much every time I take off. So... That part was pretty much through rote memory and the reason that I made the decision that I did. And I think it's helpful for our audience to realize that we're talking here about a pilot who's highly experienced over 5,400 total hours in a combination of GA and military training all through your life, some operational test background, over 1,000 hours in your Bonanza, which you fly frequently, you train a lot. So what we have here is a, a really proficient pilot, well thought out, a lot of experience, who's made these cuts in when to turn back, when not to turn back. And it's helpful for the rest of us to realize that's the level of expertise that helped in this scenario because you instinctively relied on that. Yeah, I I would say that everybody needs to set what they feel comfortable with. You know, this idea of setting personal limits is is really a a great notion. And, you know, the only way you really get to understand that is is quite honestly through practicing. And, you know, you can get a CFI if, if you don't have a simulator or availability of one. You can certainly do it in your airplane where you get up with a CFI and you, you know, go to a quiet field where you're the only people in the traffic pattern and you can pull the power back and do a reasonably approximation of losing your power and and try this at various altitudes so you get comfortable with what those limits would be for you so it's you know it's important um when you have an emergency and those who've had them know this and there's no question that there's this um period of indecision that will you know, it, it happened for me as well. I mean, it was probably it was probably less time than I thought it was, but I would think it was probably two or three seconds at least before I made the decision to actually start turning the airplane. So, yeah. Um, yeah. and it's when that rope memory, you know, takes over that that training is so beneficial, right? So, so anyway, in my turn back to the field, and let me let me back up just a second and tell you yeah. when I took off. I was flying a 40-minute flight down to Stewart, just north of Palm Beach, and um, I knew on my previous flight that um, I had uh, about 40 or so gallons of fuel left in the airplane, and I was going to burn about half of that going down to Stewart. So I elected to take off with about two-thirds, a little less than two-thirds, between a half and two-thirds on one side and a little less than half tank on the other side. And that's what I was indicating when I took off. When the engine quit, uh, the first thing, of course, I looked at as I was turning back is I I see I have fuel in both of my tanks. And and this is another important, I guess, factor that, that considered in this. As I took off out of 
Sanford, I lowered my nose and I flew a higher airspeed than perhaps I typically would at an uncontrolled field. And I do that for a couple of reasons. One is, for those who know Sanford, uh, the Class B airspace for Orlando sits above it. And there's a lot of traffic. And so I tend to try to stay at a slightly lower altitude and, and um, keep my nose down so I have a little better visibility to look for traffic and so forth. And so my habit is to, rather than climb at VY, is to capture about 120 knots and fly the airplane out and climb out at 120 knots. So when the engine quit, because of that lower climb profile, I was further from the airport than perhaps I normally would be. But the trade-off was I had a little more airspeed. Mm -hmm. And so when I made the decision to turn back to the field, I used some of that excess airspeed and bled down to my optimal glide speed, but that helped accelerate my turn back to the field. But as I said, because of the lower climb profile, I was in fact further away from the airport when the engine failed. And adding to that, I think you had mentioned also you had elected an intersection takeoff, which also puts you a little bit farther down. Yep. That is correct. And, you know, anytime something like this happens, um, you know, all of us, I'm sure, you know, second-guess a whole bunch of different decisions that we make. And um, certainly I spent a fair amount of time thinking about all the decisions I made as this flight progressed. And, you know, I evaluated them and critiqued them. And uh, I can share with your audience some of my conclusions, which maybe I can do after I finish describing the the event. Great. Okay. But yes, I did elect to do intersection takeoff. I think that runway is around 11,000 feet. My airplane is parked at a hangar that's about midway down. So I had about 5,800 feet for uh, takeoff, which obviously is more than adequate for a Bonanza. But I'll come back to that point when I talk about some decision-making in just a second. So as I'm turning back to the field, the engine actually started again very briefly, probably within the first 10 degrees of my turn, but, but literally just a cough. It kind of cranked up and then immediately died again. So as I'm making the turn, it occurred to me that maybe I have an electrical issue. And one of the procedures in a Bonanza is to check your left and right mags. And it's easy to reach that while you're flying the airplane because it's just right over here on the left side of the cockpit panel. And so as I'm making the turn and I'm able to still look outside, I could reach over and I check the left mag, the right mag, and back to both, and that didn't change anything. As I completed the turn, now I'm heading back to the southwest. The runway is now 27 right because I'm going back to the same runway, just the opposite direction. And I'm heading about 230, and I just use 100 knots. Technically, the speed is about 110 knots, but the difference, honestly, in your glide slope between 100 knots and 110 is almost negligible. And when your brain's much smaller because you're having an emergency, it's easy to remember 100 knots. <laughs> so, so I targeted 100 knots. And um, by the time I got out of the turn, I was probably down, I estimate, somewhere between 400 and 500 feet. And as I was completing the turn, it, it became very clear to me, two things became very clear to me. One was, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk away from this. Um, I'm not going to have to put this airplane in a situation where it's going to jeopardize my health. 
In other words, I, I was, it was clear to me I was going to get inside the perimeter fence of the airport where, you know, the land's largely flat terrain and so forth. But it was also clear to me that I wasn't going to make it to the runway. Because of the distance I had flown and at that lower climb profile, I wasn't going to get all the way to the uh, runway. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, important point, too. As I was coming through the turn, I took my RPM and I took it all the way to low RPM, which is, uh, again, one of the procedures you have in a bonanza, really, for any piston airplane to maximize your glide distance and uh, you know try to minimize the drag of the spinning propeller. And as I'm coming down, I take the mixture back and I lean it all the way out and then rich it back up, which, again, is another one of the procedures. And as I'm doing that and I'm looking at what's in front of me, one of the things that becomes really apparent to you is and, and it's a hard it's hard to resist the temptation if you're going to be a little short. And that is to try to pull your nose up and stretch your glide. And you just have to be very cognizant of the fact that you're going to get your best glide profile at that target speed. And all you're going to do if you increase the pitch and slow the airplane down is increase your rate of descent. So keeping the nose pointed down, I, I tell you, you got to fight every urge you have, you know, to, to not do that, mm. to pull the nose up. Boy, that's interesting. A pilot like you with your background and operational test background and all that was still really having to rely on your discipline that you know you want to pull that nose up, but you just know. Yes, you do. And so uh, <laughs> that that's interesting that even a guy like you was fighting that. No, I mean, I think it's such a natural urge. And, you know, we all read about various mishaps mm-hmm. and other things. And I think one of the real concerns, and it's a very valid concern about any sort of a turn back to the field without power, is people will, if you don't pay attention to your airspeeds and you don't pay attention, you slow the airplane down. And eventually, if you're not paying attention at all, you stall the airplane. And that's, I think, where, you know, we present perhaps the biggest single challenge for these turns back to airports is, you know, you've got to be very disciplined about the angle of attack that you maintain on that aircraft. And in this case, you know, we look at airspeed. So anyway, I get down to about 300 feet. And as I'm going back towards the runway, I noticed that as you're going to 27 right at Sanford, uh, it's funny all the things you notice that you never noticed before, right? Because uh, I've landed there many times. But there's a big ditch that runs up uh, parallel to the runway on the north side of the runway. It's probably a, got about a good 15-foot, I would say, ditch, and it's maybe about 20 feet wide. And it goes and it extends past the approach end of the runway out probably another quarter of a mile into the approach end of the of the runway. And so now I'm coming down at an angle and the terrain on the south side of that, on the runway side of that ditch is is really the terrain I prefer to be on because it's flatter. The grass has been cut short there where it uh, where it's past the approach end of the runway. The grass is a little longer and the train's a little rougher on the on the north side. So I really, really would like to get over that. And the other benefit, of course, of getting on the other side is after the end of the runway, there's about another, I would say, 800 feet to 1,000 feet of asphalt that extends beyond the runway. 
And then you get to this short grass, which, you know, extends maybe another thousand feet beyond the end of that asphalt. So as I'm coming down at about 300 feet or so, it occurs to me that I haven't switched my fuel tank. So I, I reach down and for those who've flown Bonanzas, you know, it's um, in this particular vintage Bonanza, it's down by the pilot's left ankle mm-hmm. is where the fuel selector valve is. So you got to have to reach down and I flip it over. I did not get the boost pump on because by this time I'm just focused on getting the airplane safely back on deck. And now as I'm coming down and I really want to clear the ditch, I'm again, really fighting the urge to, to slow the airplane. And admittedly, I'm probably down because I know, because I looked at it, I was probably down to about 90 knots. So I did let it bleed a little bit, but I then decided I'm going to get past the ditch. So I was confident I was going to get past it. So I selected approach flaps and then I continued to pull, raise the nose and I captured 70 knots with approach flaps. Again, just based on, you know, my practice and uh, some knowledge of, of the Bonanza. So at approach flaps now, and of course, the other real benefit about flying a Bonanza is you have incredibly fast gear speeds. Mm-hmm. The gear comes down in about four and a half seconds. So I was always planning, once I knew I was getting past that ditch, I knew I was planning to put the gear down because it's relatively short grass. It would be really no different than landing at a grass field, which, by the way, we do out in the summer with Pete and a bunch of other folks. We go out and do some backcountry flying, flying into grass. So I was very familiar with landing the airplane on grass and, Mm -hmm. you know, all that felt very normal. So selecting approach flaps, cleared the ditch, and then landed at half flaps. And I would say I was probably down to about 65 knots or so when I touched down and um, landed in the grass. The airplane actually rolled out onto the asphalt and then came to a stop on the asphalt. And, of course, by the time I had landed, the Sanford crash crew was already at the end of the runway, I guess shortly after I got there because I did wait for them for maybe a couple of minutes. You know, when I went back and looked at this, I actually could pull up the ADSB information. And from takeoff to when I touched down was a little over two minutes. It was two minutes and maybe like 15 seconds. Hmm. So, and the reason I bring that up is because it seemed like an eternity. And I made some decisions throughout that whole process. And in retrospect, I wish I had made some better decisions, but I also then look at the time frame that it took for all this to transpire. Mm-hmm. And I kind of say, well, you know, maybe, maybe I'm being too judgmental or too self-critical, but mm-hmm. nevertheless, there are a couple of decisions throughout this whole process that, uh, that I could have made perhaps a little differently and, and made a, you know, slightly better outcome perhaps. Um, you know, the, the first lesson really, at least, in my estimation that I did write uh, throughout the whole thing was, you know, the thing we always preach to everyone. It's something I've been taught to me since, since I started flying 40 plus years ago, and that's fly the airplane first, you know, it's aviate, navigate, communicate and flying the airplane is obviously the single most important thing you can do, particularly when you're close to the ground and you have kind of an emergency. Hey listeners, if you're a fan of aviation and this podcast, we hope you'll consider becoming a member of AOPA. AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and general aviation and supports our freedom to fly. 
Whether you're just getting started in aviation or have been flying for years, you'll find the resources and support you need to get in the air and keep flying with AOPA. Become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll join a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. Eric, can you talk to us a little bit about that focus at low altitude between flying your airplane and trying to work your systems to make sure that you can try to get that engine back running, the timeshare between those two? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. So as I mentioned, as I made the turn back to the field, my primary focus obviously was on, you know, aviating and making sure I was uh, flying my airspace plane and, you know, remaining obviously in the, in a good flight envelope and hitting my target airspeeds and so forth. And I would say that my attention to the emergency was when I had time available, I would think about what I wanted to do and then do it. I did not go through it perhaps as you typically would when you have an emergency where you have, you know, more time. For instance, if I lost power to the engine up at altitude, you know, where I have a a much longer period of time, I go step by step through the emergency procedures as they're defined in the POH. And the way they're laid out for the Bonanza, and I think this is pretty applicable for most piston airplanes, and this gets back to sort of the decision-making process, you know, the first step is to switch your fuel tanks and put the boost pump on. As I said, I didn't really get to that until, quite frankly, it was too late. I would have never had an opportunity to get fuel from the other tank in to my aircraft. And and as it turns out, for this particular incident, if I had, in fact, switched the fuel tanks as the first item that I had done, perhaps I would have got the engine to restart. One of the things that you know has been drilled into my head over and over again over a long period of flying is, you know, 99% of the time if the engine just quits, it's because it's not getting fuel. And so, but having just taken off and having known that immediately when I start up the airplane, I look at whatever my more full tank is and I switch to that tank. And I do that very early because you know, you don't want to do that at the end of the runway in case you have an issue where you had water or something and you take off and, and then your engine quits. So I had switched to what was my fuller tank back when before I taxied out and had been running on that tank for, which was the left tank for probably a good five minutes before I took off. And as I said, when the motor quit, I still was showing fuel in, in both tanks. Nevertheless, what actually had occurred is, and we found this obviously on the subsequent maintenance, the fuel bladder in my left tank, you have a nozzle, you actually have two at the bottom of your bladder. One goes to the fuel line, to the engine fuel line, the other goes to your sump. And the one nozzle that connects to the fuel line to the engine, where that nozzle, which is a rubberized compound, mates with the rest of the bladder, it had all perforated at that point, and the fuel had was leaking out above where that seam is. So all around that, it had torn, and so the fuel was exiting there, and it wasn't going into the fuel line. So no fuel from my left tank 
was actually going to the engine when that failed. Had I switched to the right tank, perhaps I would have got the engine back before I had to make the you know engine out landing. So in retrospect, had I switched the fuel tank and turned on the boost pump as the first step as opposed to switching the mags, which is what I did, then perhaps the engine would have relighted prior to having to make the forced landing. You know, as much as I've claimed to myself that, man, if my engine quits, I'm going to switch tanks and turn the boost pump on, I think the immediacy of losing the engine that close to the ground, Mm -hmm. you know, my decision-making was fly the airplane first. And I can't, you know, in retrospect, I I still second-guess myself and say, yeah, probably should have tried to do that. But on the other hand, you know, further distraction or if I continued flying the wrong direction and started my turn later, or if in the distraction of reaching down by my left ankle and switching the tanks, I let my airspeed bleed below where it needed to be. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's a trade-off. Yeah. I, I, you know, in, in retrospect, yeah, I wish I had done it. But, you know, the fact is, given the relatively short time, I guess you can never really fault yourself for flying the airplane first. So, yeah. um, you know, again, had it happened at altitude, um, I'm pretty confident I would have done the procedures in the proper order, <laughs> but uh, but that just wasn't the case uh, down low. Yeah. You know, the other thing with respect to decision-making, and I, I mentioned it earlier about the fact that I decided to take an intersection takeoff. The runway right that's behind you is not any good to you, another old uh, lesson we all learn. And I have always used this intersection takeoff because it's, quite frankly, more convenient than taxiing. I don't have to back taxi, but taxi down the taxiway another 6,000 feet to get on the runway at the beginning of the runway. In this particular case, though, had I taken off all the way down at the end of the runway and had 11,000 feet available to me, had this same identical scenario happened, there's no question in my mind that I would have made it back to the actual runway itself. So just something to consider. I'm not trying to say people should never take intersection takeoffs, but it's certainly something to think about when you're doing your pre-flight planning and making those kinds of decisions. The other decision that I made was to climb at this faster airspeed to keep my nose down and essentially improve my visibility and uh, make sure I stay under Class B airspace and all that stuff. And again, in retrospect, the trade-off there is that at any given time, if your engine fails and you've been climbing at something less than BY, you will be at a lower altitude. By definition, BY is your best rate of climb which is substantially slower, obviously, than the airspeed I was flying at. Again, in this particular case, had the engine, had I climbed at VY and the engine failed at the exact same time frame that it failed, I would have been closer to the field. I also would have been at a higher altitude. Now, granted, the trade-off would be that to intercept my best glide speed, I'd actually have to lower the nose and increase my airspeed because VY is less than the optimal glide speed. So so there is a trade-off there. But again, these are things that everyone should consider when you're taking off. And um, 
I look at those decisions, the decision for an intersection takeoff, the decision to fly at a higher airspeed and a lower climb profile, and they they all had some bearing on, obviously, the outcome of, of this incident. Yeah. And hearing you think through all those uh, decision points that you made, Eric, it just reminds me that it's like so much in aviation. It should depend on every flight you have and that particular flight and the dynamics behind it. There is never really a always right, always wrong answer, do you think? And that just kind of encourages us to think deeply about every flight, every takeoff that would take just a few seconds to sort of review the dynamics of that day and how it may impact each of those decisions. Yeah, I think that's that's a very accurate statement. There are no two takeoffs that are identical, and takeoff is a critical flight regime. There's no question about it. And I will say that pre-briefing a takeoff to yourself, you know, when you, even when you're flying, in this case, I was flying by myself, I will always walk through in my mind, you know, and sometimes I say it aloud, you know, these are the things that I'm going to do in the event that I lose an engine. And I think it's important, you know, in those critical flight regimes that you have a plan and that plan may be different depending on the circumstances, right? So, yeah, yeah those, are all, those are all good things to think about. Well, fantastic. Some excellent pilotage that brought you back to the airfield and able to land. And, and I think you said you were able to land in that soft grass, get the gear down, and there was no damage done to the airplane or to you personally. And you rolled out on the, uh, on the overrun there and then had the airplane towed back and all's good there, right? Yeah. Um, you know, as I said, I had some maintenance folks check it out. We discovered the, the issue with the fuel bladder. I had the fuel bladder replaced with a new one. We inspected the other side. It was interesting. Um, you know, the airplane is a 1981. This is it's on its third set of fuel bladders. The fuel bladders that were in it prior to this mishap were new in 2007. The other fuel bladder showed absolutely none of the wear or the signs of the condition that we saw on the left fuel bladder. It's hard to say what exactly created that problem. Whether in the manufacturing, perhaps the, you know, it's a, it's a, I think a glue that holds that nozzle on, you know, they're both made of that rubberized compound and they're, a, there's, it looks like they're glued together and there's a seam and we've had some other people take a look at it, but it's unique. We, we haven't seen it on anything else. So they're exploring that to see if there's any issues there. But um, yeah, once we got the new bladder in, the airplane flies great and uh, no issues since. Great. Knock on wood. <laughs> well, Eric, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Are there uh, any other things that we didn't cover that you'd like to talk about in terms of the incident and your reaction to it? Oh, there is one important part that I did leave out. <laughs> this sort of exacerbated the, the problem. It compounded okay. it, I should say. As you may recall, I told you that when the incident occurred, I still was indicating that I had fuel in both tanks, and this probably led to some of my decision-making as well. And when I mm -hmm. got the airplane back on deck, I was still indicating that I had over a half a tank in the, in the left wing where I had the, the fuel leak. Subsequently, when we took the airplane back, we drained the tank, and there was only about a half a gallon of fuel left, which obviously would be unusable in a bonanza. So that's why the engine wasn't getting it either. And 
when we did the inspection and, you know, I explained this to the maintenance team, they took a look at my fuel sensor in my left tank and, you know, it's an armature in there and it's, it's on a rheostat. And as it, as you lower it down, once it gets below a quarter of a tank, I was getting erroneous readings from that fuel sensor and it would, you know, jump to three quarters and then down to a half and so forth. But above a quarter of a tank, it was measuring accurately. Hmm. I have no idea how long my sensor had not been working correctly below a quarter of a tank. But the reason I probably never noticed it before is I never really run my tanks down below a quarter of a tank ever. So um, when that fuel exited the airplane, it never showed up or if it did it you know I didn't notice it till it was resending it so they replaced my fuel sensor and everything worked fine after that and the reason I brought that up is one of the things that I also second guess myself about is I had 40 gallons for a 20 a flight that would take 20 gallons however if you lose access to one of your tanks because you have a fuel leak or some other reason you no longer have that fuel, you know, you got to remember you only have what's in the other tank. And granted, I had other places that I could have landed if I couldn't get fuel out of the one tank. But it's an important reminder that when you're doing your flight plan and you got to think about those things as well, like if I don't have access to this fuel in this tank, how much fuel do I really have on board? So just another thought. And, you know, kind of along that thought line is whenever I take off with an airplane, I, I used to fly a Navion a lot, had two separate wing tanks or, or actually had main tanks and, a, uh, and an aux tank. And now I fly a Super Cub, left and right independent tanks. One of the first things that I'll do when I get airborne is switch tanks when I get at altitude because I want to make sure all the fuel is feeding from all the tanks I have available. And then I have some confidence that that fuel is truly available to me for the entire flight. Great point. My standard operating procedure is 15 minutes after takeoff, I switch tanks always and run it from the other tank. And then I burn 30 minutes on each tank and switch back and forth every 30 minutes. But that is exactly the reason I do that. The same reason you do is I want to make sure that fuel's available. Yeah. Well, a really dynamic scenario that happened uh, quickly. We're so thankful that you responded the way you did and brought the aircraft back safely and you back safely. Eric, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate it. Wow. One of the most demanding scenarios there is in general aviation, actually in any aviation, single-engine airplane, engine failure immediately after takeoff. It worked out for Eric, and there's some important context here to think about for his scenario. First, the engine came back for just a little bit that gave him a little added extra thrust to help him make that turn back. Second, he had operational test background, very well trained, and he had a lot of time and proficiency in that airplane. That helped him respond very quickly and appropriately to that turn back. And then third, even though he did an intersection takeoff, he still had a lot of runway, almost 6,000 feet of runway in front of him that also helped him make it back to the airport. Those things were in Eric's favor. And it's important to remember that when you think about turnbacks. I'd like to talk about those for just a little bit. Turnbacks are the impossible turn. A couple years ago, the Air Safety Institute did a video where we took four 
different types of airplanes out, and we simulated some engine failures and did some turnbacks. We took an RV-8, a Bonanza A36, a Cessna 172, and a Super Cub. And one of the things that came out of that experience for me is that in some airplanes, a turnback is simply not a very good option. That was my takeaway for the RV-8 and the Bonanza A36. So my takeaway is I would not attempt a turnback maneuver in a Bonanza. Now, this worked out for Eric for a bunch of the reasons that we mentioned, but a turnback is so dependent on so many variables. And so before you would attempt a turnback, you would have had to thought through all of those variables to make sure that you have the potential for success. My takeaway was that on any runway, at any length, I would not attempt a turnback in a Bonanza type of an airplane. What makes the difference in the success of your turnback is the climb profile relative to your glide profile. And so you've got to be able to basically out-climb your glide distance. And that depends on so many factors in terms of headwind and the speeds that you climb out at and the density altitude of the day, the weight of the day. Now, there are some airplanes where this is more likely to be successful. And that was one of my takeaways was that in a Super Cub or a Cessna 172 type airplane, depending on the factors, a turn back is a very viable option that you can have in your toolkit. But again, it comes with a bunch of caveats. Are you trained and can you act and fly in a disciplined manner to make sure that you pitch over, fly a coordinated turn and focus on your airspeed and your coordination to get back to the runway? That depends on proficiency, that depends on training, and then what kind of takeoff profile did you use, how much runway is there behind you, how heavyweight are you, all of those factors are dependent on making a turn back a success, even in an airplane with a good climb to glide ratio, like for example, a Super Cub or a Cessna 172. Now my takeaway was in a Bonanza or a low wing type of airplane like a Cherokee or those kinds of airplanes, I simply would not attempt a turn back on any runway at any altitude. That was my personal takeaway. So just a fantastic story, some excellent pilotage from Eric Henson to bring that airplane back. And we're so thankful for him and that he shared a story with us. Thanks for joining us on this edition of There I Was, alongside our producer, David O'Leary. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Fly safe. Hey, listeners, we want to thank you for making this one of the most popular aviation podcasts there is. Thanks to you, our listeners, for your engagement, for following us, and for your likes and subscribes on whether it's iTunes or Spotify. Those mean a lot to us and help us expand the aviation reach in our aviation safety message. If you'd like to help us and become a supporter of these podcasts, please consider a donation to the AOPA Foundation. That's aopafoundation.org. And you can earmark your donation for the Air Safety Institute. Thanks for your support, and thanks for making this podcast so successful. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. <laughs>